America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is The Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. Looking up uh, forward to another great weekend, one would hope. But with all of that, is America collapsing? Are we falling, dissolving like the old Roman Empire? It took Rome hundreds of years before the empire collapsed. Uh, you could say for the United States of America, we've always been uh, known to do things more quickly than other countries in terms of accomplishments, some terms, uh, in, in, sometimes in terms of magnifying threats. We will be talking to a writer who has an answer for all of those who say that uh, doomerism is appropriate. And uh, basically, he um, takes on, on various subjects, e economic and social and international, he takes on the claims of uh, the doomers. We will get to that on the Michael Medved Show. We will also be talking about uh, the latest prediction from the creator of The Handmaid's Tale to the uh, idea that America really is moving toward Gilead, which was her dystopian fictional theocracy, fanatical theocratic dictatorship that was established in what used to be the United States. Uh, where is Margaret Atwood just flat out and completely wrong? We will talk about that. We'll also talk about the grim prospect of a conspiracy theory taking over one of our two great political parties. No, not the Republicans this time. This is a conspiracy theory about greedy big businessmen uh, trying to gouge people and to raise prices just so they can make more money. Why is this a destructive line for the Democrats? We'll be talking to Catherine Rampell of the Washington Post on that issue. And plus, there are whole bunches of movies, some of them pretty interesting. Two horror films, one that is, is truly sickening and disturbing, uh, but also one of the uh, most entertaining and uh, satisfying films of the year, which is out this weekend, and it is about a, an actual art heist that happened back in the 1960s, starring Helen Mirren and Jim Broadbent. We will cover The Duke, uh, The Bubble, and uh, more later on The Michael Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. On the inescapable issue of abortion, inescapable because there is the prospect that this is going to be turned back into a political issue, not a judicial issue. That is what the Supreme Court is looking to do if uh, they go forward, and I think there's every chance they will, with the decision that uh, has already attracted a majority of support on the court, the decision written by Justice Sam Alito. The, uh, the whole idea is one of the things that's so extraordinary about that decision is that it is a very rare example of someone in Washington uh, turning away from grabbing more power. In other words, if there is one theme that underlines the current situation with the court, it's the court saying, this is not an issue that we are going to handle. 
which is what is so ridiculous about some of the charges that are made. What right are they going to attack next? What are they going to do next to destroy our country and et cetera, et cetera? The whole point about a decision saying that there's no basis in the Constitution, there's no basis in statute law at all for the Supreme Court to decide to legalize abortion everywhere. If state legislatures want to do that, go ahead. In fact, many of them had done that before Roe v. Wade. And the one thing that the left is working hardest to uh, mislead people about is exactly this idea that somehow this is a power grab by uh, ill-tempered, elderly, uh, ill-considered and uneducated Puritans on the Supreme Court to seize theocratic power in the name of religion. There is nothing like that anywhere in Justice Alito's decision that he wrote, nor in the court's action in saying this should not be an issue for courts to decide. Now, you may believe on the libertarian side of things that, well, the whole issue of abortion is not an issue that government at any level should decide. It should just be totally between the woman and her doctor. There are some Americans who agree with that, but that's not a majority. It's also not a majority to see the Americans who believe that abortion should be banned under all circumstances. That's only about 19% of the public who have uh, opinions in that direction. In most cases, people would like to see a more moderate, more balanced approach to this issue. Not the Democrats, because this morning they spoke on the Capitol Hill steps about abortion, vowed to continue the fight, which is not a fight against the Supreme Court, by the way. It's going to be a fight from state to state in legislatures across the country. In many of those legislatures, the Democrats have already won. I don't think anyone is expecting that the state of California, with Roe v. Wade gone, is going to go back to restraints on abortion. There's no evidence at all that they're going to move in that direction. In fact, they want to make California an abortion destination for people looking to terminate their pregnancies. Here is uh, Speaker Pelosi, her weekly press conference, always an event of enlightenment and entertainment. Nancy Pelosi, uh, this morning at her press conference, talking about her view of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Clip 11. The geo-pointed Supreme Court put there for the purpose. You know, in our country, we have always had because of the brilliance and genius of our Constitution, an expansion of freedom. With this possible, or the suggested draft of it, would be the first time a court has expanded freedom and then, and then contracted it in a very, very dangerous way. Okay. If freedom is, quote, contracted, it's not the court that's doing it. It will be the legislatures, the people's elected representatives. And uh, do I think that it's going to be a healthy thing for the country to actually work this out among our elected representatives? Maybe. 
because at least there you have a branch of government that is built to be responsive to the people and to the public's concerns. And if the Democrats believe that somehow the fact that the Supreme Court is turning this over to state legislatures and to different state legislatures doing things differently, if they believe that's going to end up with some kind of conspiratorial massive takeover by a minority of Americans who uh, are religious fanatics, allegedly, if they believe, as uh, Margaret Atwood does, that uh, we are at the very point of Gilead, of that uh, fictional dystopia that she created in The Handmaid's Tale. She's the author of the original novels that inspired that televised entertainment, if you can call it entertainment. If um, uh, people believe any of that, then clearly they basically have given up on their fellow Americans. Because what the left wants to do is to take this decision away from the people and vested in the courts. How is that democratic? 1-800-955-1776, our phone number. We will be right back. Is America doomed and collapsing? Coming up on The Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. That's 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. Now's the time to join. Best show on the radio. This is the Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, a continued controversy, and this will be true, I am sure, for months and months to come, at least until the election this November. Key primaries coming up uh, next week, the big one in Pennsylvania, where there are dire primary fights for Republicans for both the nominee for governor and uh, nominees for the U.S. Senate. If you want the the one uh, projection is that the most likely nominee for U.S. Senate is now Kathy Barnett. President Trump jumped in and will cover this. Uh, President Trump jumped in. He's endorsed uh, Dr. Oz, Mehmet Oz, the uh, celebrity thoracic surgeon who um, has been the subject of all kinds of extremely nasty attacks. And then he's hit back at his chief rival, Dave McCormick. But uh, the, the truth is, right in between them and not subject to that kind of attack has been Kathy Barnett, who is a, a MAGA conservative. She is a big supporter of the Stop the Steal theory. She feels the election result was stolen in Pennsylvania. And now, because she has not been the subject of negative attacks until now I mean I guess an attack by definition is negative she um, she seems to be slipping in and is she electable is a real question given the fact that she used to have a radio show and she said some fairly outrageous things on the radio show we will get to that question coming up 
But with all of that going on, one thing about Kathy Barnett is she is certainly very, very passionate and solid uh, on the issue of abortion. And one of the reasons she has all of a sudden surged in the polls is because of the broadcast of uh, an interview where she talked about her own birth. Uh, she, her mother was raped, and she came into being because her mother was pro-life. Otherwise, Kathy Barnett doesn't exist. She's 50 years old. She has a history in the uh, military reserves uh, and a long history as a conservative activist who has been arguing for years that black people are better represented by the Republican Party than by the Democrats. And part of that has to do with uh, uh, the willingness of outspoken Republicans to uh, sometimes take it to the media. And uh, Ted Cruz had a, a very hard-hitting attack on the New York Times, but it's not just the New York Times. He, he singled out the New York Times for putting together an emphasis on a line of attack and a line of reasoning that is completely nonsensical. And that line of reasoning that, reasoning that says that, okay, now that uh, the Supreme Court has gotten rid of Roe v. Wade, next they're going to be back to banning interracial marriage. That's what the conservatives really want. They don't want to allow black people to marry white people, or Asian people for that matter, or Hispanic. I mean, what do people really believe? Why do people in the media even raise such possibilities when it has nothing to do with the reality? Here is Senator Cruz, clip 18. You notice that, that when they're talking about the Dobbs decision, they very, very quickly say, if this decision goes, goes into effect, it, 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 it will strike down the availability of contraceptives. Right. It, it will strike down gay marriage and, and interracial marriage. The, the, the New York Times went so far, the editorial board, the New York Times suggested that there are multiple states in the union that if they were allowed to would ban interracial marriage. What utter garbage. You bigoted, moronic, Manhattan, leftist, elite, lying sacks of crap. <laughs> yeah, but how do you really feel? Yeah, it, it kind of pisses me off. Well, it, it does, and it should, because you see, the idea of that the Supreme Court could do anything to ban racial, interracial marriage, even if they wanted to, is absurd. The only thing they could do would be to open the door if they wanted to, and they don't, to open the door to state legislatures who wanted, oh, let's bring back those bans on interracial marriage. By the way, at the time that Loving versus Virginia was decided, which was 1967, there were 16 states that still had limitations on interracial marriage. The other 34 states had already fully legalized it. And, and is it shameful that there was ever such a thing as any state that had a government ban on your marrying somebody because that person was a different race? Uh, yes, it was shameful. And it was appropriate for it to be struck down under the 14th Amendment. 
And there's no one anywhere in the country, not in any law school in the country, not in any corner of the illegal establishment who believes that uh, what we need in this country right now is uh, a ban on interracial marriage. It's completely outrageous and absurd, uh, but uh, not any more absurd necessarily than uh, Ilhan Omar uh, with her response to Ted Cruz. Uh, 2.5, Jer. It's shocking to me that all of this is being championed and it's coming from a party that believes in small government, a party that talks about freedom, liberty. And this is the party now that wants to do everything that they can to tell women what decisions they can make about their reproductive rights. They want somebody like Senator Ted Cruz regulating your uterus. They want Senator Chuck Grassley having authority over your body. We have to say no. Okay, uh, again, this idea that it is your body, so what is that thing that has a beating heart that's growing inside your body. This is the one question, of course, that they never address. Uh, what is it? I mean, I I this is not like the idea of changing your body through plastic surgery. Uh, this is, at some point, is it not, somebody else who um, may be spending some time <laughs> inside your body but uh, if there's a separate heartbeat, if there is a separate being that will continue to grow and develop and maybe someday become somebody wonderful, maybe someday become somebody terrible, but will become somebody unless it is somehow interrupted in that process, how can you deny that it is a life? How can you deny that it is human and uh, how can you deny that at least the people who are clearly pro-life have some sympathy for that being inside you sympathy for america are we collapsing coming up on the medved show i am beyond honored and excited for the michael medved show There are some things that most Americans know deeply and instinctively, but every once in a while we need to have our visceral opinions backed up by some logical argument. And uh, that's where Noah Smith comes in. He's, uh, Noah Smith is uh, a former Bloomberg opinion columnist. He was an assistant professor of finance at Stony Brook University in New York. And uh, he blogs at Noah, get it? His name is Noah Smith. It's Noah Pinion for Substack. Uh, he's written an important piece entitled, No, America is Not Collapsing. Okay, first of all, Noah, you begin 
by talking about why it is so many people may actually believe that we are doomed. In fact, uh, you refer to such people as doomers. Uh, what's uh, giving rise to this fear, this conviction? Um, I mean, you know, a lot of things are going wrong. You know, we've got inflation. Um, we just had a pandemic where a million people died. Uh, you know, we've had political unrest, riots, protests, uh, some terrorism. There's been a lot of, uh, you know, bad things, and people are very stressed out, and it's very easy to wring your hands and say, oh, the system is collapsing, America's done, blah, blah, blah. Okay, and, and first of all, you go through point by point. Economically, uh, people are terribly worried about inflation. Uh, you suggest in your piece, which is linked at our website at michaelmedved.com, you suggest in your piece that they may be more alarmed than is appropriate given where we really are economically. Exactly. If you look at the fundamentals of, you know, where we are, things are a lot stronger than people think. So, uh, for example, you know, yes, there's inflation, but also pretty much everyone who wants a job in America has a job, and that's a very unusual situation. That's not how things usually are. The employment situation is actually great. If you look at wages, you know, wages for a lot of people are justifiably mad because wages are lagging inflation for the middle class and the upper class. But if you look at, you know, the working class, the bottom sort of quarter of people, their wages have actually gone up by more than inflation over the past, um, you know, year and a half or so. And so their, you know, inequality is coming down a little bit. You know, inequality rose for many years. Now it's coming down because the people at the bottom of the distribution are finally getting a, a little bit of um, a raise there. And so, you know, there are some, some underlying strengths to this economy. Uh, yeah, and uh, not only underlying strengths to the economy, even the crime issue where people look at the statistics and a, a record number of uh, gun deaths that uh, was just announced by the CDC and uh, a number of major cities uh, showing all-time highs for criminal violence. The uh, point that you make is putting this in context. Yes, we are getting worse than we were, say, uh, 10 or even 20 years ago. But what it doesn't take into account is the tremendous improvement in criminal justice and in crime on the streets that took place in the 1980s and 90s. Explain. Right. So uh, not really the 80s, but the 90s for sure. Um, you know, in the, in the early 90s, we were, and in the 80s, we were a very violent society. You know, we had, um, uh, oh, man, there, there was just a lot more violence pervading at every level of society and extremely high murder rate. You know, New York had uh, something like 2,000 murders in 1990 or something around that. I forget. Uh, in the thousands. And, um, you know, now it has in the hundreds. It's like an order of magnitude lower. It's just so much safer. People are still right to be worried about violent crime, and violent crime is way up, you know, so I don't want to trivialize that. There have been lots of horrible attacks, lots of attacks on Asian people especially, um, you know, who are getting preferentially attacked, uh, you know, in the streets and, and, and stuff. So that's terrible, and I don't want to minimize it. But at the same time, it's not yet as bad as it was back in 1992. And 1992 was kind of an age that people thought, this is the golden age, you know, communism had just fallen. Uh, you know, we'd had, a, we'd had a recession in the early 90s, but people were generally more economically confident. 
and um, and so you know, but, but at the same time, murders were quite, were much higher than they are today, uh, even after the rise in crime. So I think we should just you know sort of realize that, put it in perspective, try to remember what things were like back then. Um, one of the things you you also mentioned, of course, and how could you not, is the question of foreign policy. A number of people. Uh, predicting that China is going to overtake the United States as the world's economic and military leader. Uh, people uh, looking at the aggressive uh, and bloodthirsty way that Russia is pursuing the war in Ukraine, worried about combinations of China and Russia and Iran. Uh, why is, should, is there grounds for optimism there that uh, you want to emphasize? There are. And um, so you'll notice that Russia was supposed to be this big military powerhouse, uh, hyper-modernized and very warlike, uh, you know, backed up battles, oil money. Then they invaded Ukraine, which is a smaller, you know, it's a country a quarter their size and was much poorer before the war. And yet Ukraine is kicking their butt. And, of course, some of that's because we sent weapons to help. But mostly it's just because the Russians weren't doing very good and the the Ukrainians were extremely valiant and, and smart and tenacious in defense of their country. And that shows, you know, that and, – and Europe immediately united around this cause. You know, there's a couple of European countries like Hungary that are dragging their feet. But in general, Europe united very quickly around the need to sanction Russia to support Ukraine, uh, you know, and to, um, to enlarge NATO, things like that. That – it's like um, suddenly – China is down one major ally, and we're up one major ally in the blink of an eye. With uh, you know, and we were we, the United States, have been very effective helping Ukraine. Uh, you know, with with um, you know, especially weapons, economic stuff, sanctions, some intelligence sharing, things like that. So we're not as ineffectual as people think. You know, we yes, we withdrew from Afghanistan, but that was because there was no point in staying in Afghanistan. We had nothing to do there except you know, like. I don't know, essentially babysit this country and keep the Taliban out of power uh, by occasionally shooting them. And it, we could do it. It was possible. We did it for years. And our casualties weren't very high uh, in the last few years we were in Afghanistan. But where there, was no, there was no point to staying in there year after year, decade after decade. And that's why we withdrew. You know, people think of it as like this defeat or something. I think Russia is now showing us what a, a real actual military defeat looks like. Well, and, let us uh, hope so. The I want to get to the last point that you make, which is kind of counterintuitive, but I think you're right. You suggest that even this doomerism, this cyclical thing where all of a sudden people are saying, oh, no, the sky is falling, even that is a sign to some extent of America's basic health. Why? Well, that's just – it's what we do. You know, it's um, a lot of countries sit there and just, you know, ignore problems and wait for them to build up and, you know – I saw a lot of this in Japan, you know, where I lived for several years. There was a lot of can kicking and just ignoring of problems until they got so bad that nobody knew what to do about them. And um, and so in the U.S., we do, we use a different strategy. We we weep and we wail and we screech and we fight all the time. We say everything's horrible. And this, uh, you know, we freak out about every problem. You know, we're we're famous conspiracy theorists. We're hiding in our, our farmhouses with our shotguns, you know. And yet that what that means is we get to jump on these problems because everyone really scrambles to head off problems before they get too bad. And the, the thing is, yes, that's, that's, that's one of our fundamental strengths. We just have to remember not to overdo it. We have to remember not to get 
so panicked that we panic ourselves into sort of passivity and don't actually do anything. You know, and we lose, have to, uh, and we lose our Native American underlying optimism. The piece is well worth reading. It's called No America is Not Collapsing. It's by Noah Smith. It's posted on our website at michaelmedved.com. Uh, another piece about optimism and its importance and appropriateness, even right now, coming up on The Medved Show. the day from uh, President uh, Rodrigo Duterte of the Philippines, the outgoing president who has uh, been announcing his plans of how he wants to spend his retirement. His daughter was just elected vice president of the Philippines and the son of the previous dictator of the Philippines, who everyone assumed had been disgraced. Well, he's got a comeback of sorts. He's in the old Fernando Mar um Marcos is dead. The new president is his son, known as Bong Bong. I do not know the origins of that name. I mean, it sounds like the Flintstones. I know. It was Bam Bam and the Flintstones. But uh, Bong Bong Marcos, the new president, uh, won in a landslide, uh, even though there's a lot of tisk tisking about it. But um, Jeremy Steiner, pride of Hillsdale College, came up with this. When American presidents leave office, what do they do? They build houses for Habitat for Humanity. They paint and then release books of their paintings like George W. Bush. Or they uh, go visit uh, creepy islands and chase women. I plead guilty to that. Uh, <laughs> there are all kinds of things that American... Uh, or they ply in a, a comeback and uh, it, it, uh, make it uh, clear that uh, they're planning to run again or return to the White House. But in the Philippines, the outgoing president, Rodrigo Duterte, who uh, was very proud of the success of his war on drugs, where <laughs> there were probably more than 7,000 people who were killed, according to Human Rights Watch, but he just promised that uh, after leaving office, which is just a few weeks away, I'm going to search for drug peddlers, then I'm going to shoot them and kill them. Uh, this is part of what made him a very popular chief executive. Now, concerning what we were just talking about with Noah Smith, about the forthcoming collapse, the end of America, the doom of America. Brett Stevens over at the New York Times was writing about the same issue. And he writes, this is a season, an age really, of American pessimism. The pessimism comes in many flavors. There's progressive pessimism, full colon. The country is tilting toward MAGA-hatted fascism or a new version of The Handmaid's Tale. There is conservative pessimism. 
The uh, institutions from primary schools to the Pentagon are all being captured by wokeness. There's Afro-pessimism. Black people have always been excluded by systemic, ineradicable racism. And then there's the pessimism of the white, middle, and working classes. The country and the values they've known for generations are being hijacked by smug, self-dealing elites who view them with contempt. There is also the pessimism of the middle, writes Brett Stevens. We are losing the institutional capacity, cultural norms, and moral courage needed to strike pragmatic compromises at almost every level of society. Zero sum is now our default setting. He goes on and says, the list goes on, but you get the point. Even without the daily reminders of Carter-era inflation, this feels like another era of Carter-style malaise, as complete with an unpopular president who tends to inspire more sympathy than he does confidence. And then he turns, and Brett Stevens asks this question, so why am I still op an optimist when it comes to America? Because while we are bent, our adversaries are brittle. As we find ways to bend, they can only remain static or shatter. Putin, he writes, and he's certainly right about this, is belatedly discovering that the powers to humiliate, subvert, and destroy are weaker forces than the powers to attract, inspire, and build. Powers that free nations possess almost as a birthright. The, um, the Kremlin might yet be able to bludgeon its way to something they can call victory, but its reward will mainly be the very rubble it has created. The rest of Ukraine will find ways to flourish, identify as a member of NATO, and the European Union. Meanwhile, in Shanghai, now this is amazing when you think about it. Meanwhile, in Shanghai, more than 35 million people remain under strict lockdown, a real-world dystopia in which hovering drones warn residents through loudspeakers to control your soul's desire for freedom. Does anyone still think that China's handling of the pandemic its deceits, its mediocre vaccines, a zero COVID policy that manifestly failed, and now the cruel lockdown that has brought hunger and mediocre uh, and medicine shortages to its richest city. Does anyone think this is a model for the rest of the world? And then finally, he, he ends here, rulers who come to believe their own propaganda will inevitably miscalculate often catastrophically. Look again at Putin, who really believed he had a competent military, which brings me back to the United States. Just as dictatorships advertise their strengths but hide their weaknesses, both to others and to themselves, democracies do the opposite. We obsess over our weaknesses, even as we forget our formidable strengths. It is the source of our pessimism. But it is also, paradoxically, our deepest strength. In refusing to look away from our flaws, we not only acknowledge them, 
but also begin fixing them. We rethink, we adapt, inventing, we find new ways to grow. I think it's profoundly necessary to put all of this in context. And all of the horrors that people scream about the United States, I understand the baby formula issue is a very real issue. And it's a terrible situation, uh, for, particularly for people with going through parenthood, maybe for the first time, and who just don't know what they're going to do. We're addressing that. And uh, it, it will, God willing, be better. And yes, it does have to do with some of the concerns of regulation to make sure there are no impurities or improprieties involved with some of the formula that is sold to the public. So with all of this going on, and the United States looking back on uh, a million deaths, uh, what is the underlying message? And and I know that that the the one thing that is most clear is that it takes more than a devastating disease to destroy the United States or to destroy what I honestly think is our base level optimism. Uh, people spoke particularly in the 19th century, but it was true of the 20th century as well, and I think it can be true of the 21st century. America is defined by a can-do spirit, where nothing is impossible. And one of the things that people, the, the bitter arguments about vaccines, that appears to have departed to some extent, and people are coping. We have a, a member of the family, not who lives with us, but a member of the family elsewhere who's uh, battled, battling, just pretty much done with uh, COVID. And, uh, and I think the country is less, um, less appalled, less paralyzed, less handicapped by COVID. Lots of big challenges, lots of political challenges coming up ahead and all kinds of questions about our political system, how it functions, how it will function. Now the uh, developments in Missouri and Pennsylvania elsewhere suggest, hey, just hold on a minute. The Republicans may not gain control of the Senate. They will probably gain control of the House. So what happens next? That's always a question that Americans ask because things remain unpredictable. But uh, we will talk about uh, some of those ideas where no, we're not governed by some kind of conspiracy. There's a new conspiracy that is taking over, at least the Washington Post columnist says so, Catherine Powell, is taking over the Democratic Party. Uh, what do we do to uh, obliterate any credibility for that conspiracy at all? Just look at the facts about this greatest nation on God's green earth.